Hello ladies, gentlemen, everybody, and welcome to this, the latest episode of Media Voices. This season, as you'll know, we're doing deep dives into some of the biggest trends, tools, and tech that has affected publishers over the past 12 months, and that's as part of our annual Media Moments 2023 report. Now, that's going to be released early December. You can pre-register for that at voices.media forward slash mm23. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. And I'm Esther Thorpe. This week, we are joined by Dr. Amy Ross Ardegades, who is a postdoctoral researcher fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. So between 2020 and September 2023, so very recently, she worked on the Trust in News project, which is fascinating. And she's currently a part of a team working on the upcoming Reuters Institute's digital news report. Amy, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's really exciting to be here. Of course. I think we we mentioned, uh, or rather I mentioned in a newsletter a couple of days ago, that trust in news is like a sore tooth issue for me, where I can't stop prodding it, but at the same time it's constantly causing kind of low levels of anxiety and pain. So I wondered, uh, what is that trust in news project? Yeah, so the trust in news project was a three-year um, cross-national study that was focused on really understanding uh, what drives trust and distrust um, among audiences in different national contexts. Um, so more specifically, we were focused on studying uh, trust in four different countries um, with quite diverse uh, political and, and media systems and, and, and cultures as well. Um, so we were focusing on Brazil, India, the United Kingdom, uh, and the United States. Um, and throughout the project, we went through kind of multiple rounds of data collection using both um, quantitative and, and qualitative methods. So ranging from surveys to in-depth interviews, focus groups. Um, we also did a tracking study for the Brazilian elections. Um, and we've also focused on kind of a variety of different areas in relation to trust, um, including, uh, for example, the role of digital platforms, um, trusted news among marginalized and underserved audiences, um, our last report focused on possible solutions uh, for trust, at least from audiences' perspectives. And, um, and so we, we wound up publishing a total of eight um, industry-facing reports, um, all of which are available on the Reuters Institute's website, um, in addition to kind of more academic-type work. Um, and even though the, the project is now um, officially over, we're also um, putting together a book proposal um, where we're trying to kind of pull together a lot of these very different themes and, and try to make sense of all of this, this kind of massive amount of data <laughs> that we've collected over the last three years. Why pick India and Brazil as, as kind of two non-Western places to focus on? I mean, I, I guess we're, all quite, we're quite familiar with what's going on in the US and the UK, but, but why, I guess why, why those two as, as additional? Uh, so, so one thing is that between these four countries, they they make up kind of a massive percentage of the world's population. I mean, they're very big countries. Um, they're very complicated. And we were trying, I think it really comes back to this idea of trying to get at diversity and trying to see how different things play out in very different contexts. Um, and so you have kind of these different political systems going on. Um, like I said, uh, quite diverse cultures in, in these different countries. And Trust in news is related to a whole bunch of different factors, which I'm, I'm happy to say more about throughout this conversation. I think it just organically comes up. But since it is such, this, such a complex thing to understand, um, we really wanted to get this diversity. Um, and also just countries that are like large with these like huge populations um, that are also diverse internally. So, um, yeah, that, that was kind of the rationale behind it. I was going to say, because when you were talking about this, the remit is 
potentially the broadest I've ever heard of anybody we've ever had on the podcast. So where do you even begin? What were sort of those, I suppose, the, the key issues you wanted to study at the beginning? I'm assuming it broadened out after that as they got more data in. But where do you even begin with a project like that? Yeah, it was it was a huge challenge. And we really just took the first few months just to kind of do a very scoping review of everything that's been written. And it, trust has become an increasingly important and, and kind of popular topic in, in academic work as well. So we spent a, a, a good chunk of time at the very beginning just trying to get a sense of what do we really know? Our, our first report was, was called something along the lines of what, what we think we know and what we want to know, um, where we just kind of, it was a combination of reviewing the literature and then just talking to journalism practitioners in the four different countries. Um, because one of the priorities for us was for this uh, research to be hopefully useful and interesting for journalists and for news organizations. And so um, throughout the project, we had a, 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 like several different rounds, at least where we um, engaged with um kind of journalists, editors, um, different people in the news industry, uh, just to trying to get a sense of how they were thinking about things. Um, and so we certainly did this at the very beginning. And, and that was kind of where we started. So and, and then after that, it was just kind of starting at square one. Um, I think one of the big challenges is that we didn't sometimes you don't know what these things mean, right? Like what, what, what are thinking, what are people thinking about when they say trust? What, what are, what, what's all this mean? Um, and so on the audience side, we started out just having, you know, in-depth conversations with just kind of regular audience members across the four countries and, and asking very basic questions about, so what does trust mean to you? Um, how do you think about this? And, um, and then just kind of took it from there and, and obviously just keeping a pulse on, on other research that was being done in parallel, um, where, you know, a lot of colleagues have been doing really interesting work as well. We see a lot of um, kind of trust trackers come out um, around the start of the year. Um, yeah, I think Axios has just published one where, you know, trust in the US has fallen. There's the Edelman Trust Barometer. Trust has always fallen. I can remember reading a, a, a sort of critical piece last year where, where this person was saying, well, when you think back, you always kind of look back with a slightly rose-tinted lens. So you, so trust will always fall if you're asking these kind of questions. Um, and I, I know your, your project sort of took a three-year snapshot rather than tracking, but do you think there's kind of value in tracking trust like that? Or are people always going to say, oh, yeah, of course, my trust has fallen because that's just how we operate? Right. No, I mean, I think it's a fair criticism. I think it's fair to approach uh, trust indices with caution um, and reflecting on what they do and don't tell us. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think that they certainly have value. I think one thing that it's worth remembering is that we often tend to be like, oh, you know, trust is falling everywhere. Uh, but that's not actually the case. I mean, there are some countries where trust has been fairly stable, like Belgium, for example. There are tr uh, countries where trust has even increased, um, such as Denmark. So even though in more countries we do see a downward trend, and, it, and it's obviously concerning, it's why the project was born, it's not stable across the board. And I think that that's an important thing to have in mind. Um, I think one of the concerns is that, kind of going back to the point I was making, is that we don't necessarily know uh, what people have in mind when we're asking them this question, you know, um, especially when you're asking such a, a broad question. Like, what, what are people, what, what is in people's minds when they're answering um, this question? Uh, the digital news report has 
try to get at this by asking a couple of different general questions. Mm. So one of them is, um, you know, to what extent do you, can you trust most of the news most of the time, um, kind of generally speaking? Um, and then to what extent do you think you can trust most of the news that you choose to consume? Um, and that's an important distinction because, you know, there's just almost endless potential sources people can be relying on. And so it can be interesting to try to divide it up in different ways. Um, there have also been questions about kind of distinguishing between uh, trust in news on social media, for example, or trust in search. Um, so it, it really also depends on what you're focusing on. Um, that said, there was a study published in Sweden this year um, showing that respondents, um, when they were answering this kind of general trust question, were seemingly averaging across all mainstream sources when they were forming these general evaluations. Um, about the news media's trustworthiness. And that's exactly what we would want for these kinds of general trust measures. So there is kind of some support that, that you know, this, this it, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a valid way of measuring things for all the shortcomings that it has. Um, and still, these numbers are only going to get you so far. And that's where I think other kinds of methods like qualitative data can really help us better understand how it is that people are forming these ideas, uh, what they're thinking about, and, and what trust even means to them in the first place. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is that there's also maybe a more normative question of what do we think, what, what, what should these numbers be? Like, what do we, what, what is our ideal? And I think most of us would agree that we don't want people to trust everything all of the time. Like there's good reason in the current information environment for people to be skeptical and to be mm. discerning. Um, and so I think we've also spent a lot of time thinking about what it is that is like normatively what we would want to see among the population. Um, and it's not necessarily people trusting everything, uh, being able to, to tell apart and having sources that they, that they can turn to and, and feel like are, are reliable. Um, so I think those are all kind of a variety of considerations to, to have in mind. Nice. I mean, I've, I've really, that's the first time I've heard that expressed, you know, we don't want blanket trust because then people are just as susceptible to disinformation as they would be with very low trust. I think it's it's difficult, but but I think it, it's really largely due to the information environment, mm. right? We just don't know what people are using. So, yeah. But how about that interplay then between, you mentioned, you know, people's trust in the general ecosystem versus the trust in the outlets that they typically choose to interact with. Presumably then pe the people are interacting with sources that they find to be more authoritative, trustworthy, reliable, and accurate over time. To what extent is even that trust in individual outlets affected by people's perception of the overall ecosystem? I think that they're kind of interrelated. I do think that the I, I think what one thing that we really became clear to us as we were researching is even when people express trust, it doesn't mean that they just believe everything. And, and there's this term that's generalized skepticism, which is one thing that's been kind of used in the literature to refer to how people tend to approach news, especially online. Um, so even when they do tend to say, I trust most of the time, it doesn't mean that they're just sitting there passively believing everything. People engage actively with the information they encounter. Um, they're obviously, uh, when it's a source that they're familiar with, that can play an important role. But still, what they're reading is also important. People will, will think about these things and, and, and kind of try to make sense of it from their own lived experience, for example. Um, I think one thing that we do see, though, is that aside from this um, trust in kind of news in general declining, um, you do see trust in individual news brands over time kind of tending to decline as well. Mm. Um, so I, I do think that they're kind of 
there is an interplay there. Um, there's the question of what, what does this mean? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that people aren't using the information, but again, just that they're kind of approaching things skeptically. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that the, the question is, is general and we don't necessarily know exactly the, the, the answer to your specific question, but, but hopefully that was helpful. No, absolutely. I was okay. going to say it would be crazy if we did know, considering the amount of data points and also the, just the amount of things you have to model to, to get to the trust, because it's not just the news ecosystem, it's, you know, performance of the economy. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's everything that kind of feeds into this. Yeah, it's it's hugely complex, um, and it, I think that that's also one of the challenging and interesting things about trust is that you do see all of these different factors. You see, you know, what is interpersonal trust like in this culture? Are people generally trusting or not trusting? And in Brazil, people, I think we had like ninety eight percent of our respondents saying that they that, like saying that they didn't trust, you know, other people around them. <laughs> um, so there's like this factor. There's obviously, you know. What do, how have like new digital technologies changed things for people? You know, very basically how people encounter and consume news and how that can indirectly impact people's sense of trust as well. Um, and then there's, of course, politics is a really important part of this. Um, and we know, I mean, there's research that's very clearly shown in a comparative way that there's a very, um, a very clear kind of trust nexus is what how it's mm. often been referred to uh, between trust in political institutions and trust in the news media, and um, and so it's shaped by these things that are often also external to journalism, um, and we know that in some countries issues around polarization have made this ex like um, particularly fraught. So um, and then there's of course all of the things that are internal to to journalism as well that can shape trust. So it's it's very complex and it's there's things that are kind of operating on a variety of different levels here that leads so beautifully into this next question <laughs> um and i'm, I'm going to pick on the uk because that, that's the example we know best but in the uk this year particularly we've seen there's been quite a few examples of individual outlets actually losing trust over single issues we had the bbc's coverage of the farage bank account um mm. incident which like th that had a visible knock on the public's perception of the bbc so uh, i mean <laughs> the bbc <laughs> perception is like a whole big topic in itself but i suppose <laughs> Yeah. To what extent do single issues and, and how publishers cover single issues like that move the needle over time? Or is there a bit of a bounce back effect where, you know, give it nine months, and actually nobody will remember what, what happened? That's that's a really good question. I think so. I think when it comes to trusted news over time um, and again, it's worth here just remembering that trust is kind of, it's moving, like it's in a downward trend, but it kind of goes up and down. It's not, it's not a stable thing. Uh, when, it, when it comes to looking at kind of the general trends over time, um, I think it can be really challenging to kind of tease apart uh, the extent to which these declines are due to single issues versus uh, the combination of different factors that we know shape trust, which I've alluded to before, you know, that the technological changes, uh, the political environment and, and trust in other institutions. Um, I suspect that, you know, sometimes these single issues can uh, feed into already kind of disfavorable uh, trust ratings. So possibly kind of compounding some of these effects among people who are already somewhat skeptical. Um, so in other words, yes, these things might move the needle, but they're also kind of interpreted through people's current state of trust, if that makes sense, right? Like if if you are already distrusting and you see something like this, you're gonna it's gonna reinforce this view and maybe make it more extreme. Whereas if you tend to be trusting, you might have a more 
kind of benevolent interpretation of things. So they're, they're kind of intertwined as well, these broader perceptions with these individual trust issues um, in, in ways that can be, again, complicated to disentangle. Um, and like I said, to, to the extent, I, I mean, to what extent they, they matter over time, I think is also challenging. I don't know that we, we know this for certain. Um, mm. It would require quite granular data collection, I guess. Um, but I do suspect that certain, you know, high profile instances of, of journalistic error or, or even journalistic malfeasance, um, you know, when, when fresh in the public discourse, they can certainly cause these stark dips that you see in the data. Um, and that might recover to a degree over time. Um, but I do think that it really matters what the issue is. Um, that I think that that's really key. And one thing that was really interesting when we were doing um, some of our qualitative data collection early on, um, particularly with, with uh, British uh, participants, was how often people would bring up the phone hacking scandal. Um, and it's, wow. it's old. I mean, that was a long time ago, but it, it was surprising how it really stuck with a lot of people. Um, and so, I mean, this is qualitative data, so it's hard to know, like, I, I can't generalize from it. But the fact that it came up in, the, like, a considerable number of interviews when people were making sense of, you know, distrust, it shows that these things can linger, um, mm -hmm. some of them more than others. You know, it might depend also a lot of it here has to do with perceptions and, and people's ideas of intent, which is different from an accidental mistake or whether people think things were intentional or not. Um, and I guess the last point I would make um, is that, you know, with or without the, the, the Farage bank account issue, the BBC has been seeing a pretty sustained decrease in trust mm -hmm. over time. Um and this, and going back to the to the point I made earlier, it, it can be kind of hard to disentangle how much of this is due to this isolated event and how much it might just be feeding into these other concerns or criticisms that people already are having towards the BBC for, for whatever reason or towards the news media more generally. So I think these things are really intertwined. And I think that, that goes so, a long way to illustrating your point earlier about, you know, disentangling this all is so difficult because you can't necessarily like tease out one strand and go, that was really, that was, you know, responsible for this drop in trust. One of the things that I know we have seen, um, not just in the UK, not just from your own research, is that in times of, you know, need for information, so whether that's the pandemic, whether that's times of war, we typically yeah. see trust in news outlets rise. But in this current state of what, you know, seems like omni-crisis where we're constantly getting bombarded with information about you know the health issues and conflicts is that bounce back lessening is there a sort of i suppose dulling of that effect yeah i think yeah i think maybe it's there's kind of a couple of different things that are coming into play here um one of them is certainly yes we do see we do tend to see this kind of rally around the flag um in times of of acute crises um where you just tend to see increased support for political leadership and and again when you think about this trust nexus between politics and journalism it, it kind of applies here as well um so you know we saw in in Reuters Institute data that very early in the covid pandemic we did see this kind of covid bump in trust um pretty much across the board when people were in this state of like um uncertainty um and when the crisis was still in very much in this kind of acute phase um but yeah i think as as time has passed and as covid has become complicated and um politically divisive uh, you've seen this really fade to mm -hmm. a large extent. Um, and in many places, basically, 
close to reverting back to where it was before the COVID pandemic. Um, not necessarily everywhere, though. And again, I think here it's important to think about different national contexts. I was looking at a study that was published from Norway this year that found that um, the COVID effects seemed to be a bit longer lasting, like they still were seeing baselines higher than they were before COVID. So you can see how this might be a bit different across national contexts. Um but in a lot of places, it does seem to have gone back to pretty close to where it was um, before the pandemic. And again, part of it's this kind of acute phase being over. Mm. Um, and and part of it is just the, the complexity around all of this and and just it becoming, a, again, a more polarizing um, issue. And I do think, just getting back to this point that you were making about overload, I do think that part of this seems to be linked to or or maybe even contingent on news use. And of course, these like intensified periods of news consumption around these crises, um, they do often lead people feeling kind of fatigued and exhausted. And we do see these declines in news interest and people avoiding news, um, which are concerning trends and that might also be linked to trust in a way. Um, because if you think of trust as kind of an ongoing relationship between audiences and news organizations, to the extent that that relationship is weakened and people aren't you know, habitually using news or going back to the same kinds of sources or using news at all, you could expect that to kind of shape people's sense of trust in the long term. I think it's really interesting tying that back to what you were saying about um, trust being tied into politics and kind of what's going on in the political sphere. Because I think when you look, when you look at the two major wars that have happened in the last Gosh, how, how long ago was Ukraine? Two years? One year? So, um, when when the Ukraine Russia war kicked off, um, there was there was a rise in trust. Everybody sort of flooded to the trusted news outlets. Um, there was really really hanging on what was going on. Um, but the the Israel Gaza war, I know that I know the project is wrapped up, so it won't be sort of looking at that. But because that is so so much more politically divisive, I've never seen so much so on social media sort of mudslinging it at various publications' coverage of it. You know, if you previously trusted a publication, but they're not covering it in the way that you wanted, people are like, oh, you know, they're now like biased mainstream media. And I think that's that's really interesting. I don't know sort of to what extent. I, I don't know where people's political opinions in that sense are sort of coming. Is, is that being driven by what they're seeing on social media that they're then turning against the publications they previously trusted? I mean, I, I do think that there is... <laughs> It's hard to tell. I mean, we've definitely been interested in looking at the relationship between media criticism and trust. I think, and we see, so we see a clear correlation that people who say that they're exposed to more media criticism tend to say that they they trust news less. And so there, there's clearly a relationship there and it's, it's quite stark in the data, but it's very hard to tell sometimes what the relationship is between those two variables, because I think you don't always know if people are kind of just because they don't trust news, they're consuming other sources that are more inclined to criticize uh, news out like mainstream news outlets. Um, or if they are coming across this criticism and that in itself is eroding um, their trust. So it's, it's kind of hard to know what direction this these two things are kind of flowing in. But, but it is certainly clear that there's a lot of criticism floating around. And I think um, one thing where the data does there, there does seem to be pretty clear evidence is the role of, um, for example, uh, elite cues. So political leaders, of course, we all know, uh, you know, fake news, the whole co concept of fake news, right? Like, we know that the way that salient and important political leaders talk about these things and other elites really can shape um, mm. kind of mainstream or, or kind of broad public discourse about these things. So um, yeah, I do, I do think it's, it's concerning. And, and like you said, as a, 
a very polarizing topic to be covering. Um, I think it certainly is is concerning. Um, I've, I've also seen a lot of this flying around, and yeah, it's it's extremely challenging for news organizations to cover as well when when issues are so polarizing. I mean, this isn't a good start going into next year, really. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be one to watch. Dispirited from behind the sofa. Um, so obviously, you, you have endless data points here, and I remember reading a study not too long ago that Ofcom found that younger audiences, I think it was 16 to 24 year olds, actually had higher than average trust in more traditional sources. So like linear TV broadcast news, uh, and, you know, print newspapers. And, you know, is there an opportunity there in the mid to long term for news outlets to really reestablish trust with a younger audience, I suppose, create trust among a new generation rather than trying to restore, restore it across the entire ecosystem? I think, I mean, I think that there's always opportunities for individual news sources to try to stand out and fill really important voids. And I think young audiences are really important. I mean, I think it's something that, that news outlets, just thinking of their kind of longer term sustainability, are really thinking about. I don't know this data in particular, and I know that there's a lot of data that's shown the opposite, including mm. some of our um, um, research published in the Digital News Report in 2022 has shown kind of the opposite, that people um, under, I think the, the cutoffs, the age cutoffs were slightly different, and that can also be a part of it, but finding that people under 35 are kind of the lowest trusting age groups um, compared to the the older ones. And so I don't know. I think it, I think, I don't know, like I, I've seen kind of opposing results along these lines. I think regardless, I think that there's two, in my mind, there's two kind of fundamental challenges um, when it comes to younger audiences. Um, The first is lower interest. So we Mm. know for sure that, you know, these 18 to 24 year olds are um, more likely than than older adults to say that they're simply not interested in news. And, And the gap is very big. And that's that's concerning. I think it's a challenge, but I think it's also a potential opportunity. Um, I think that the other big challenge that we see with these younger audiences is getting back to the point you were making, you know, they they have a very high reliance on social media. And that's challenging because people in general tend to trust news on social media less than Mm. they do trust, you know, kind of more mainstream sources um, and for a very good reason. And so I think that those are kind of the two areas where there are challenges, but, but possibly also opportunities. And I think one, one possible opportunity that I can think of is, you know, when we hear people talking about having these more trusting relationships, often they'll talk about um, individual journalists. And so, for example, television news anchors for the kind of the more old school uh, crowd of people, they tend to be really important and people will feel like, oh, I really trust this one person. Um, and I think that you can get a version of this on social media with, you know, journalists um, being really physically visible and on, mm. on on platforms like TikTok. I think that there certainly are opportunities there um, for, for winning over and building relationships with audiences. That said, we know that the platform environment is very volatile and difficult and can change very quickly. So I, I, I don't want to make it sound easy. Um, <laughs> if yeah. not got, if you, well, you've not got the flip side of that as well, where you've got people that aren't journalists establishing themselves, like trying to establish themselves as trusted authorities, and right. sometimes doing so with very high production values. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there's there's a, a, a whole other load of competition on there. But I think, I mean, if you're thinking about reaching these audiences, you have to reach them where they are. And, and that's where they are. That's the reality. Um, I think it's, I also think that it's just worthwhile and, and, and getting back to this bigger question, I think it's worth uh, worthwhile and, and just very interesting and, and valuable to 
you know, as we continue to collect this data over time to get a, a better sense of, you know, to what extent these are, you know, cohort effects that are mm. kind of shaped by these experiences versus, you know, differing kind of like predispositions or like, or older people more cynical or are older people more trusting just because of kind of what happens throughout people's lives. So I think that it'll be interesting as because we are collecting a lot of data and, and some of this, you need these longitudinal uh, studies to really understand fully and, and disentangle. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to continue to study this over time and see what, what the data tells us more definitively. So what I know that you, you've touched upon there, you know, an opportunity to be more visible, to be a little bit more, I suppose, interpersonal and grow trust back that way. What other opportunities do you see for news outlets? Yeah, this is such a difficult question. I don't know that I have an answer for you. And I think that the reason that I don't have an answer is that one of the big takeaways I would say that we've had from this project is that just as there isn't any single trust in news problem, there isn't any single trust in news solution. And and that's just been kind of a common refrain throughout this project. Um, and it really comes down to a variety of things, but especially who are you trying to build trust with? And I think for news organizations thinking about how to deal with this, they really need to have clarity around this. Um, and, and sometimes things that might feel good to news organizations and seem like they should help, they don't necessarily really help. Um, and, and just as an example of this, like when you ask people about these things unprompted, rarely does transparency really come up for kind of regular news consumers, um, which really? doesn't mean that it might not help with some people yeah. or that it's not, you know, in and of itself a good practice. But I think a lot of this really does come to just meeting people where they are uh, when you're thinking about trust. Um we, in our last survey, we asked people about a variety of different areas where news organizations could focus solutions. And we wound up splitting it into these like five different areas. So we had kind of transparency and engagement and, um, you know, ownership and management. And we, we kind of asked across these areas. And it was really interesting because what we basically found across the, the four countries was that it was like evenly split. You had like 20% here, 20% there, like which is the most important, right? Mm. Um and so I think, again, it really, really, it's frustrating because it's not, <laughs> I can't come out of the study and be like, well, people definitely like, this is what's going to like fix the yeah, trust problem. Solved. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, you don't, people just seem to be prioritizing different things. There's different things that people are weighing. Um, and then there's also this massive caveat of, you know, is what people say that they want really what they want? And is it actually going to change how people are thinking about news organizations? Um, and I just, we just don't know. So I think that this study is valuable because I think at least knowing how people think about this and, and what they say they want, I think is important, but it's not the whole story. And so I think a lot of it is just going to be a matter of kind of seeing how this <laughs> evolves over time. And again, like I said, being very strategic in terms of of who you're trying to cultivate mm. trust with, because in practice, a lot of these things often involve important trade-offs for news organizations. Um, on the one hand, in terms of just, you know, limited resources and how much time and effort and money can I throw at the trust problem when I'm trying just to keep my operation running, you know? Um, and then the, the other trade-off, which is just that, you know, what might help build trust with some audiences might do the opposite with other audiences. And so, um, again, there's not a blanket solution here. Um, it, it really requires tailored responses. And I feel like we can't discuss any of this without mentioning AI, which has come up in every single episode this season. <laughs> um, I, I suppose related to that and related to this kind of idea of transparency and being transparent about processes is we've seen 
a mixed response from publishers this year regarding AI. Some have sort of tried to sneak stuff under the radar and have been caught out when, you know, financial reporting has gone completely awry. Um, others, like, you know, I think Wired and The Guardian have sort of set out very clearly, like, this is how we're going to use AI, this is how we're going to label it. Do you think there is value to publishers kind of being quite clear up front about how things like AI are being used and how, the, I suppose, a bit of a peek behind the curtain about how those things go on? Or... And I suppose it's going to depend on the audiences. Or do you think audiences are going to be straight up like, you're using AI, I don't trust you anymore? <laughs> yeah, this is, we're so early in the game. I think this is a huge topic. It's moving so quickly. Um, and it's, it's really hard to predict where it's going to go next. Um, I think... I think that there's certain things that are like good practice regardless. Like I do think that, you know, but, but I think, I do think it comes back to the point of how are news organizations using AI? And I think that that's part of what makes this really challenging is that AI can be a whole bunch of different things. Um, news organizations have been using, you know, machine learning and AI behind the scenes for like, um, you know, personalizing things, um, you know, what, what, what recommendations they're offering different people. Like, like traffic reports. And- yeah. Like this has been around for <laughs> yeah. a long time behind the scenes. I think generative AI has kind of shifted the conversation, but AI it can mean a whole lot of different things. So, and, and, it, and it can be challenging because audiences might not necessarily really know what all these different uses are. Um, and I don't think that all of them are equally relevant to disclose necessarily. Um, and it's not realistic to think like every time that something that AI has been used that you have to have like a label. Like I think there's like limits to where it makes sense. Like if we think about like checking like grammar, do we think that that needs to be labeled? Like I think that there's a lot of conversations that need to be very nuanced around when it's, you know, possibly kind of editorially relevant to label. Um, and I think in some cases it really is. Um, if you're creating images, for example, I think that that's an instance where it's 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 relevant and important to disclose it. Um, but I do think that it can be challenging because we don't really know how audiences are going to respond. Um, and, you know, transparency can sometimes be a difficult thing to navigate because it is true that, you know, a lot of people might see these labels and it might make them less trusting. And so it's 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 kind of hard to know. I think it's very early in the game. I think we need to see how audiences, audiences will will evolve as well and they will become more accustomed to um, kind of living alongside AI and perhaps understanding how it's used in ways that make it either more or less scary. I don't know. It's really hard to tell. But um, I think, yeah, I think this is all an open question, something that a lot of people are looking at. Um, We're definitely going to be including more of this in our next year's digital news report and doing some more um, research from the audience side and how they're thinking about these things. Um, so given, given be... how fast that's moving, I don't envy that at all. <laughs> no, it's so difficult. You know, you, you, you figure out like you're planning this like research study and you're trying to figure out what <laughs> questions to ask people and, and you don't know if this is going to be obsolete within a couple of months or just in the, the conversation is going to have changed so dramatically that it doesn't even make sense <laughs> anymore. So it is a hugely um, challenging topic, but, but it, it'll be interesting to, to at least kind of start having these conversations um, with with people that often don't know that much about how journalism is done um, and also don't know a lot about AI. And that makes it really hard. Um, so I think people's kind of just general impressions, I think public discourse, just general discourse, what are people seeing and reading is probably going to be an important part um, for people that don't have this clear technical understanding. So we'll we'll see how that evolves. Um, I guess the other thing, apart from publishers using AI, is the the idea, and I suppose that the fear that we've had over the last sort of twelve months is that the bad actors will look at AI as a real opportunity to 
completely flood the market with misinformation, disinformation, whatever you want to call it. Do you think, I, I suppose that risk hasn't actually materialized fully yet. Do you think that's likely to? And do you think that that's going to turn people back towards mainstream publishers and, and trusted brands that have been around for longer than like 12 months? I I don't know. I I am not in the prediction game. I think things turn out very poorly <laughs> for people <laughs> who try to make these predictions. I I don't know. I think I mean, I do think that the fact that we haven't already been flooded by and people just being completely confused. I mean, when you when we the, the initial discourse, it's very common. I, I think I'll say this. It's very common when these new technologies arrive and we've seen it over and over and over or like across history. New technologies arrive. There's this kind of panic around what it's going to mean. Everybody thinks it's going to be the end of the world. Other people think it's going to be what saves us. And then it always winds up being something kind of in between. Um, and so I, I'm weary of these, you know, extremely panicky uh, discourses about um, AI kind of ruining us and our ability to tell apart what's real and what's not real, at least kind of on a mass scale. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't important concerns around AI and and even, you know, small pieces of information can can they can matter. They can cost people's lives, right? So I, I, I'm not trying to kind of underplay the role of that either. But I do think it's interesting that we haven't seen this. You know, the, some of these technologies are pretty much out there already. You know, people can make images on Dolly. I guess one of the questions is, you know, to what extent are they going to continue to be improved and fine tuned to the point where kind of they're harder to disentangle. Um, I think, but I do think there's an opportunity there, though. I think if we do reach a point where like regular people feel like they aren't able to navigate that, that certainly could be an opportunity for news organizations, as long as they're also able to stay kind of ahead of the game and detect these these kind of AI generated pieces of content. So I think there's definitely kind of a, a race there in, in terms of, you know, keeping up and, and being ahead of the game. There was a Martin's Money Tip video that came out earlier this year that even Martin Lewis was like, that's that's really freakily good. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think it is disconcerting sometimes um, to look at some of these things. And and I, I have seen some kind of more innocuous versions of this kind of on Facebook, just in my own like personal use where I'll see like, and it's almost always like, like a celebrity picture, something. And I can pretty clearly tell that it's AI. And you can tell in the comments that not everybody's able to tell apart. But I mean, in terms of like our democratic institutions and stuff like that, I, I haven't, we haven't yet seen these like super extreme versions. Uh, but I guess only time will tell. We do have a series of contentious elections coming up. Mm. Um, we're looking to do some work in this area as well, um, looking at kind of this intersection between AI journalism and then possibly misinformation in the context of these elections as well. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Again, we can't really predict what's going to happen. <laughs> that's like you, to, to ask this point, that's going to be such it's a cluster. I'll, I'll bleep that out, but it's going to be such a cluster of everything next be. year. Yeah, It's impossible, I suppose, not a waste to disentangle trust from emotion. It's an emotive topic, sort of by just dint of kind of the discussions that we have around this. So, for instance, you know, there are news outlets that I wouldn't trust if, you know, they, they turned up with, you know, a, an affidavit signed by the, the Archangel Gabriel or something, <laughs> just because what, I've, uh, what I know of their historic point of view on things. So even if I trust the reporting, I don't necessarily trust where they're coming from. How difficult was it as a, re as a researcher to take a step back and disentangle yourself from that emotion when you were doing this? Um, I think, I don't know. I think at this point, I'm, I'm used to it enough of trying to distance myself a bit. I think, you know, before, before, you know, 
becoming an academic, I was a journalist as well. And I think you mm-hmm. also have to do the same kind of exercise of kind of stepping back a bit. I mean, it's, it's always kind of to a degree, I mean, it's impossible in a way, but like you, you, you make an effort to, to separate yourself and, and to try, I think, I think part of what makes it easier is just approaching it with curiosity. Like people have reasons for approaching the world as they do. And I think as a researcher, your job is to try to understand why that is. Um, I do love that you brought up the role of emotion, though, because that's something that I've been really interested in. And it's something that you you really can't get at very well with the quantitative data. I mean, you can get at things like like uh, partisanship, and that all obviously is tied into this and, and the role of identity. But emotion really is a big part of this. And, and I think sometimes we overestimate the role of these kind of rational calculations and trust. Mm. Like, if I do everything perfectly, then audiences will, you know, trust, you know, but in practice, emotion actually is such a big part of like how audiences develop their own perceptions of trust. Um, and in the, in the qualitative interviews, you really see this kind of come through. Um, a lot of people talk about this gut feeling about this intuitive way that, oh, I just can kind of tell, I don't know, <laughs> I just get this feeling. Um, and so trust in itself is also, you know, it is so emotional in a way. Um, and it, it, so I think it's, it's really interesting. And, and, and again, it intersects with these things like identity, um, as you were mentioning. So emotion kind of all over the place. I mean, it, it's just a part of who we are as humans and, um, something to be paid attention to for sure. I think that that, you know, you illustrated that perfectly earlier on with the mention of, you know, how many people bought a phone hacking because that was such an emotive topic at the time that emotion was just so strong. Yeah. Um, so, Amy, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find you and find your work, where's the best place for them to look? Um, I think the best place is just to look to follow the visit the Reuters Institute uh, website um, or on X. I'm kind of between X and Blue Sky these days. Um, uh, but the Reuters Institute's social media is very um, active. The, the, the communications team is constantly um, kind of sharing our, our research. And so I think that that's probably the best way to stay in the loop. There's also a nice, um, newsletter um, if people are interested in kind of getting something in their inbox. Um, I was going to say you guys have got a very good weekly newsletter. Yeah, and we have one in Spanish now as well. So I'm very excited about that as a Spanish speaker. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much, Amy. We'll be dealing with trust um, as a chapter in and of itself in our upcoming Media Moments 2023 report. You can pre-download that by going to voices.media forward slash mm23. And speaking of AI, if, speaking of AI, when do we ever not? Uh, if you're listening to this on uh, on the Monday it goes out, next week is our MX3 AI event, which we're running with Media Makers Meet. That's on the seventh of December in London. There are still a few tickets left, I think. So if you go to mx3ai.com, um, all the agendas up there. There's loads on local news, consumer media, B two B, pretty much something for everybody. So um, I hope to see you there. And also speaking of newsletters, because it is all bound together, you can sign up to our daily newsletter and our community tab over at voices.media, as well as getting more information on MX3 and its upcoming event. But for now, thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Esther. Thank you for listening and goodbye.